Amen. Church family, if you have a copy of your Bible with you, if you've taken and opened to Daniel chapter uh, 7, our beautiful morning of worship and brought right into the theme of where we are in chapter 7. If you've been gone a couple weeks or you forgot, we spent considerable time in chapters 1 through 6, and uh, Easter gave us an opportunity to come up for a breath of fresh air in the book of Daniel, and now we're going right back in. And we're going right back in into chapter 7. And so for a few words of summary to kind of connect the dots from where we uh, uh, left off in chapters 1 through 6, as we consider uh, the story of God in the land of exile, how do we, the people of God, live uh, even when we're living in a place that is not our home? It's a story of Christians all throughout history, particularly the story of Christians living in today. We live by faith, as we saw uh, three weeks ago, in our forever king, in our sovereign God, and in our present Lord. What Daniel teaches us is from diets to dens and from dreams to decrees that our Lord is present with us. In the book of Daniel, in the life of Daniel, we see time and time again that our God is a present God. And you've heard me say it probably a hundred times by now. What Daniel is saying is that kings and kingdoms rise and fall, but Jesus is king over them all. That's the takeaway from the book of Daniel. And now, if you know, and I know some of y'all were here in Sunday school a few months ago, chapter 7 is a shift in the book. We go from narrative writing, so pretty much stories of Daniel and his friends, um, and chapter 7 is the beginning of what we call apocalyptic literature. Some of us in Christian life are fascinated with this. Others of us, if we're honest, we run away from apocalyptic literature as fast as we can. But it has a place in the Word of God. Apocalyptic literally means revelation. So what we have in chapter 7 is God's revelation to Daniel. It is uh, apocalyptic literature is used in Scripture, primarily in Daniel, and then in the book of Revelation, is a way to unveil God's truth in a way that words fail to describe it. And so we don't need to get captivated in the words that are used to describe it because the point of it is to paint a picture of God that is so big and grand that language literally escapes it. So for us, what do we do with this? Well, Well, we use this type of literature to build our hope to things not yet seen and things not yet understood. So even as we walk through this chapter and these chapters in the remainder of this book, although we might get tempted to try and figure out some of the details or be frustrated by some of the details, the call is this. Let's remember all of this is given to us to build a theology of hope to things that have not yet been seen or not yet understood. And that hope is this, that even in these crazy details that we're about to walk in and walk through, that God is on his throne. So as you read apocalyptic literature, whether in Daniel or elsewhere in Scripture, the temptation of our hearts is this, to to make a chart for every single detail that we see so that we can understand every single detail. But I I believe the, the bigger picture of this type of writing is for us to see the God who orchestrates the details. And so our hope in Daniel chapter 7 is to see that God. And so to that end, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. God, in chaos, God, in confusion of our lives, 
of the exile of our land that we live in as we wait our forever home in heaven with you. God, I pray that you would remind us of the promised kingdom that is ours in Christ and through Christ. And that is where our hope is found. And Lord, that is the throne that we bow down before. Lord, and that is the name that is wonderful. That is the name that we offer our praise to, the one who is sovereign over. So God, in these details of Daniel chapter 7, remind us of that forever promise that is ours in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin in the first eight verses. We're not going to read them because they're very confusing. And if you read the text in um, preparation for worship this morning, I know a couple of you already have based upon your comments to me this morning. Like, I'm glad I didn't have a dream like Daniel last night. But one person said, walking into church this morning, I said, I am too. Uh, that, that's not just bad indigestion. There's something going on here in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, What we see here, though, is Daniel is not written in chronological order. We know that because we see that this dream that Daniel had was in the reign of King Belshazzar. If you've been following along, that was many, many chapters ago, many, many kings in the timeline ago. And so instead of, normally, as we've seen throughout the book, instead of Daniel interpreting dreams, in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. And in this dream, it says that four winds were stirring up the sea. And as the sea was being stirred up, there are four great beasts that came out of the sea. Listen to how they're described. One is a lion with eagle's wings. One is a bear with three ribs in his mouth. Another, a leopard with four wings on its back. And then the fourth beast, as seen in verse 7, is terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Again, I don't want this kind of dream. But what we see is if we go back to Daniel chapter 2, what most people believe is that these kings that Daniel sees in chapter 7 are actually representative of the kings and kingdoms that Daniel saw in his dream of chapter 2. So let's connect the dots. The lion is the nation of Babylon. The bear is the nations of Medo-Persia. The leopard represents Alexander the Great. And the terrifying kingdom that has no description is representative of Rome. And then in verse 8, we see this little horn that surfaces out of the middle of nowhere. So you have these four beasts, and then you have this horn that has the eyes of man that is speaking great things. Confused yet? Like all these crazy, very vivid details, they're not just obscure or barely described. Like it is a lion with eagle's wings. Like we could even picture that in our own minds. So in Daniel's dream, these were vivid, vivid details. So what do we make of them? Specifically, these are our pictures of kings and kingdoms that would rise and fall. But a more general application is this, that they are those who are antagonistic to God's people. You see, every single kingdom that's represented by a beast is a kingdom that opposes the people of God. And so what Daniel sees in his dream is what happens to those who are antagonistic to God's people. And so we find ourselves today in a culture where we, as our people of faith, there is more and more ridicule around us in culture. There's more more and more disdain for the beliefs that we hold and the way that we practice them. And I, I hate to be the bearer of actually good news. What that means for us is that we are more like historical Christianity than we've ever been before. It's not, it's no longer this persuasion of cultural Christianity that we possess a convictional 
Christianity. And the world has always opposed this, from Jesus being crucified to the birth of the church and every single church since then. And so what the rest of the chapter teaches us is this, that God is using these obscure details, these kingdoms, these animals, to show and to reveal yet again to God's people the true king over them all. Again, a side note here. Remember, apocalyptic literature is not given to us to solve all of our problems. It's not given to us to answer all of our questions. It's given to us to point us to the truth, the capital T truth. So the confusion rules and reigns the kings and kingdoms of this world. It always has, and it always will. Think about our own culture, our own society, our own conflicts that we're seeing in the world around us today, from North Korea to Russia and to Ukraine to our own culture and our own society and and confusion over marriage and, and gender and Elon Musk buying Twitter and just all these crazy details that exist in the world around us. These are normal, and they will exist in some way, shape, or form until Jesus comes back for his church. And so our hope for us is that we sit and we just kind of live faithfully unto the kingdom that we belong to that yet we are not yet in. And that's what Daniel is being reminded of. To borrow a quote from a commentator, if the Lord had simply wanted Daniel to know the facts of history ahead of time, why did he give him such a complex, curious, multicolored, sense-appealing revelation? The commentary says, to ask the question is to answer it. God not only revealed facts about history in advance, he revealed himself to Daniel, and pressing on him something of his own awesome and glorious purposes. If we miss this, we miss almost everything. And that is the bridge to the last part of chapter 7. So let's see the reign of God in the midst of confusion, verses 9 through 12. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out and from from before him, a thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him and the court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. In these verses, we see the reign of God. And that for us gives great hope in the confusion of this world is found in the truth that our God reigns. So who is on this throne? He's called the Ancient of Days. The one who rules time is what this means. The one who orchestrates every single event in human history. That is who is enthroned in Daniel chapter 7. God in this place, he is in his role as judge. And in the ugly, confusing, and frustrating beast that Daniel is seeing There's a huge break in this piece of the story in chapter or in verse nine, because where is the ancient of days? He takes his seat over them and look how God is described. His clothing was white as snow to give us a picture of purity. 
his hair of pure wool to give us a picture of wisdom. And the throne of fiery flames gives us, gives us a picture of his power. And this is our God, the one who is perfect in purity, the one who is full of wisdom, the one who is awesome in power. That is who is ruling and reigning from his throne then and now. And don't miss this detail. Where is he? Where is the ancient of days? He is seated on his throne. He's seated, having a seat. The picture, he's not on the edge of his seat, nervous or anxious for what's next. He's not jumping out of his seat because he's surprised by what's taking place. And so the picture of our God is this, that he is never surprised. He is never confused. He never panics. And he is never undecided. So let's take this theological truth from Daniel chapter 7 and place that in your heart. Because this same God is ruling from the throne of your heart this morning. And what that means is this same God is never surprised by the details of your life. He never panics over the details of your life. He is never confused over what's taking place in your life. He always sees what's coming and he is working as we've declared in song. He is working all of those things for your good and for his glory. He sits seated on his throne. And in that place, look at verse 10. A thousand thousand serves him. It's a description of a large number of people, but even more than that. Ten thousands by ten thousand stood before him. What we have in Daniel chapter 7 is a picture of Revelation chapter 5. You remember the time when every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will gather before the throne and worship him for forever? Here's the picture. But it's particularly meaningful in the book of Daniel, right? Because in the, Daniel, in, in the book of Daniel, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace all alone. Or were they? We see Daniel thrown into a den of lions all alone. Or was he? You see, the promise of Daniel chapter 7 and this little detail is that you are never alone. That the details of your life might be frustrating, they might be isolating, you might think that you are the only one trying to live faithfully unto God. But here's the promise, that one day we will gather before his throne and we will see that we are one of millions that lived in faithful obedience unto our God because our God reigns and we are never alone. So what is he doing on his throne? Verse 11 says he is killing beasts. He's destroying bodies. The rest of them, verse 12, he is giving dominion and he is taking dominion away. Because you see, some are immediately destroyed. Others have a prolonged season of life. Either way, God is reigning over these kings and kingdoms. This is our God. Again, the picture of him reigning over kings and kingdoms of this world. This is your God reigning over the king and kingdoms of your world. We can be reminded that in the chaos of this world, in the chaos of your life, both of those are always met by the calm presence of your God. Your heart could be in turmoil. Your mind could be going 100 miles an hour this morning, and you're doing your best to be engaged and to be focused on the word of God and listen, we understand in life, sometimes those are natural human responses to what's going on in your world and in your life at this moment. But here's the great hope and promise of our God who reigns. 
is that although your life is marked by chaos, his rule is not. He is calmly, confidently, perfectly orchestrating the details of your life in a way that bring him honor and bring him glory. Our God reigns. In our promised kingdom, we see that our God reigns, but we also see this son of man, this Jesus who rules, who has dominion within this kingdom. If you would see with me verse 13 and 14, the rule of Jesus. Daniel goes on, verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. If you have your pen, circle verse 14 or underline it or highlight it, because listen to the rule of our Jesus. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. This is the picture of the rule of our Jesus. He is one that possesses and rules in this everlasting kingdom. But look at how Jesus comes into this equation. He comes in the clouds. The clouds is a way in which the God is described, that Jesus is described as, as his mode of transportation. We see it used multiple times in the Psalms as to describe the way that God rules and reigns and moves throughout the world. It's a picture of who he is, of his car of choice, if you will. And y'all know I'm a big Ford guy, but I would trade all the Fords in the world for an opportunity to ride on the clouds. And that is how Jesus moves. He rules in society, in the world around us. He's presented before the ancient of days and at the ancient of days as he's presented. Let's read verse 14 again. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And listen to how his dominion is described. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, as if we needed further explanation. And his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. The son of man has been given dominion. He has been given rule. He has been given a kingdom. Why? Look at that third phrase, that all peoples, nations, and languages may serve him. You see, he rules in a way that commands service from all people, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and his dominion, his rule. His reign is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, that will never be destroyed. That is who he is. And so let's end answering this question. What exactly does that mean for us? I think that's what the remainder of the chapter teaches us, that we receive an inheritance. The saints of the Most High God receive our inheritance of his kingdom. There are five verses that reference this word saints in chapter 7. I'm going to read them for us real quick. Beginning chapter 7, verse 18. It says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
Verse 25, he shall speak words against the most high and he shall wear them out, the saints of the most high, and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. In verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So what does this mean for us? Let's take this down for us. We saints, a couple promises for us. One, there is a kingdom for us. We possess it. It is ours in Christ. And it's our possession for forever, forever, and ever. I love how many evers there are in verse 18. He wants us to make sure we understand this is not a temporary thing. This kingdom that we inherit as children of God is forever, forever, and ever. You get the picture. This momentary light affliction that we walk through here on this earth is nothing in comparison to the kingdom that we receive as sons and daughters of God, a kingdom that lasts forever, forever, say it with me, church, and ever. Do we get the picture? This kingdom is ours. And so whatever this world brings our way, we can take with bold confidence and assurance that we have a forever home in heaven with Jesus. We end with that exclamation point. We go back to the sentence because in the sentence we find that there is for a season where we are worn out is what the scripture teaches us. That things are not going to be easy for us. This little horn, as chapter seven says, comes and wears out the saints of the most high. To say that differently, there is suffering for the people of God. But suffering is worth it for the people of God on earth because we have a forever home and a different kingdom for all eternity with our God. And so we walk in faithfulness knowing that there is an inheritance for the saints. A couple of reminders for us this morning. Do not be naive, church, about the depth of evil and the reality of suffering. But do not forget the promise that behind every piece of earthly struggle is heavenly purpose. Don't miss that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says it like this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's not forget where our true battle is and that behind every piece of earthly struggle is heavenly purpose. That does not mean this life is going to be easy. That does not mean that your life will be filled with glitter and rainbows. It means it's going to be worth it. Because one day there will come a day when the tyrants of this world will be no more. From Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to Hitler and Mussolini and Putin and you name them. One day they will be no more. And one day there will come a day when the suffering of this world will be no more. There will be no more frustration at work. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more addiction. There will be no more orphans or fear or oppression or dementia or Alzheimer's or all kind of suffering that we know of in this world around us. One day it will cease. 
and all the wrongs will be made right and all the broken things will be made new. Well, Luke, how do you know this? Let's go back to verse 17, or verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the call on our hearts and lives is this, to live in this world with our hope in the next world. Don't put your hope in this world. Don't put your hope in the financial stability that you've earned for you and your family. Don't live for the, and place your hope in the beautiful family that you've raised, this secure job, the beautiful homes that you've built. Don't put your hope there. The call here is to put our hope in the next world because the saints of God receive the kingdom of God and we possess the kingdom of God. The author of Hebrews calls this kingdom a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Sometimes I get frustrated with this pulpit when I'm preaching because I move a lot and I shake it. You see it shaking? So I have to work real hard not to put any pressure on it so my hands are fidgety. If we're honest about our lives, we get frustrated because our lives are easily shaken. One detail can throw off your entire day. One thing not going your way. One person cutting you off in traffic. One slow driver in the fast lane. I didn't say that one. One little detail can throw off your entire day. Because we're easily shaken. We're, we put our trust and our hope in the wrong things. You see, the promise of Scripture, the promise of the kingdom that we will one day inherit is a kingdom that will not be shaken. And to that, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The details of our heart, the details of our life, the details of this current situation and circumstance might not make a whole lot of sense. It might look like a, a bear with, with eagle's wings, Right? That might be what your current reality looks like. But the reminder of Daniel chapter 7 is to lift your eyes. Lift your eyes because you have received an eternal kingdom with a forever king. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A, a God who sits and rules and reigns from his throne in heaven. And so that we say the saints of God, we receive the promised kingdom of God. And as we close, that begs the question, are you a saint of the Most High? Do you fit that category? Is your life and faith, is it fixed in Jesus? Listen to how the book of Colossians describes this in chapter 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. It is God, the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. You have not done anything to deserve the inheritance that you have received in Christ. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That God has qualified you through Christ to share in his inheritance. He's done all the work. All you have to do is turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and turn to Jesus as your Savior. It's the beautiful kind of post-Easter remembrance for us. This is what the cross has accomplished for us. 
that we have received an inheritance that we have not earned. And we've been given that gift as an act of God's grace, not of our own effort. That we were once unqualified to be his, and now we are fully qualified in him. And that we have received as an inheritance, he's given us a kingdom to possess forever, forever, church, say it with me, and ever. That kingdom is ours. And that's what Daniel chapter 7 reminds us of as the people of God. The saints of God receive the promised kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you today that in your grace we have an eternal king. And Father, we possess a forever kingdom. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that allows us to be citizens of heaven. And Lord, we remember this truth. God, the saints of God, we receive the promised kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would lead our hearts to be repentant towards that reality. Lord, lead our hearts towards humility. Lord, leads our heart towards graciousness. And Lord, lead our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, it is the only way that we can navigate our time in exile while looking to our forever kingdom is by holding fast and standing on the truth of your word. So, Father, I pray that we, your people, God, we would rightly worship you for the grace you've given to us to allow us to be your people and, Lord, allowing us and giving us an inheritance that we have not earned. Lord, we say thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.